0: Okay. Um, So we got three options. We can talk about Luke. We can talk, if there's any more questions about the whole Reformation message last week, we can talk about that. Or we can get to the handout. And I got more copies of the handout. Look at that. No, we're done with the green one. We got a new handout, Lee. While you were in London, we got a new hand. This now, don't worry. This would have last us at least until you know 2016. But, um, but, so, start, let's start in reverse. Any question? Any holdover questions? Because we spent our entire time last week talking about um, the Reformation, the gospel, that whole thing. Any any questions related to that? Yes, Candy. The question, I'm learning, I'm listening sometimes to the Sunday school, they've got to repeat the questions for the tape. The question is, what would be the, I don't know if I have the best, what would be a good, a good way of dealing with a staunch Catholic who's not only staunch, but probably uninformed? Um, No, that can be difficult, because it's one thing if people know things, you can talk about it. Um, Well, that's a good question. One, One of the things might be to ask them what they make of you. Meaning, instead of that, whether you're not, they're, they're not feeling attacked. What you're trying to do, the goal, is to draw them out, to draw out what they believe, to draw out what they're trusting, to get them to say what they're believing. And so, one of the things that might be helpful, and that's part of what those canons of Trent can do, is, you know, what do you think about me as a Protestant? What, what are your thoughts of that? Like, for instance, my dad was a, exactly that, a staunch Catholic, who had a very minimal version of Catholicism, but he was very staunch with it. And he thought, you know, we we're Christians, we we're all going to heaven as well, just God was a little displeased with us because we didn't, you know, acknowledge the Pope as the vicar of Christ. But he didn't, in other words, he did not believe what Rome officially believes about us. So why pick that fight? Um, I, I have family members, I ask them, tell me, what do you think we disagree on? What do you, what do you think the disagreement's over? You know what I mean? And, and then you've got some topics of conversation. If they think it's just the Pope... So do you think we agree on Jesus' death and everything? I mean, other words, Generally, people feel less threatened if you're asking them, what do you think? People love talking about themselves. Um, so that's a good way to draw them out. And then once they've said what they think or what they believe, or whatever, then you got something to talk about. But uh, it, it can be difficult because my dad was basically, his view was, yeah, 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 the stuff you read in the Bible, it's, 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 I think you're right. But bottom line is the priest has got the inside track with God and the priest said, I'm okay. And so I don't know if I need to worry too, too much about this because the priest said I'm okay. And um, for me, the inroads in witnessing my dad was papal infallibility. He he acknowledged the Pope, he, he knew enough, he was a lawyer, he knew enough to know the popes have contradicted themselves and the uh the councils have contradicted themselves. I mean, ev- Vatican II was a pretty big change. In fact, that was why Serena's mom, as a younger person, didn't c- reject Catholicism, because you you can't change, you know. Um and Vatican II is a pretty big change for Rome. Uh, and uh and so my dad's inroad was just recognizing, so I basically got my dad to, uh, to acknowledge very cautiously on his part that scripture had the final authority. Caveat being, if it's clear and undeniable what it's saying, but if it's clear and undeniable what it's saying, then scripture trumps everything. I was like, Really? He's like, Yeah, I said, Awesome, let's go to John 3, you must be born again. It seems undeniable to me, Dad, that this is important and necessary. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? No. I'm going to propose then we should talk about this because Jesus seems to make it look mission critical. You know, you, must, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born. And that was really where we started talking, where my father made a profession of faith days before he died. So I just would try to draw them out and not make them feel like you're absolutely attacking them. Um... You know, and just try to get them to tell you either what they make of you, what they think the difference between you and them is, and uh, if, if they're not as willing to say what they believe. Um, or the other, here's the other thing I did with the RC Sproul CDs. I have an aunt, um, and that, that is the proper way to pronounce it, aunt. And I have an aunt, and she's she's a Catholic. She's like my dad. And I said, this, this is kind of sneaky. I hope she never listens to this tape. Uh, I said, it was right after the R.C. Sproul, after I went to that conference, this was probably 2006, and I said, hey, Aunt Paula, I just went to this great conference, and the speaker spent an entire hour laying out a wonderful presentation of what I believe. Because I I, I talked to her and said, what do you think the difference between us is? She said, well, basically it's the Pope and um, the authority of the church, and we've got a couple, you know, you don't accept some of the books in our Bible. That's all she thought our difference was. So really, it's interesting, because the topic of this guy's sessions where he lays out a, a, the Protestant understanding of the gospel, and he did a marvelous job. I can certainly tell you if you listen to that, that's right where I'm at. And then he spent another session laying out the Catholic understanding of the gospel. But I'm not as informed on Catholicism, so I was hoping you could tell me how how good of a job he does. Does, does he accurately lay out Catholicism? She's like, oh, well, you let me to see that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well. That's a great way both to help Catholic understand what the church teaches and to show the difference because that was really my biggest goal last week was not to attack anything, but look, these, these are not even close to the same thing. We may use the same terminology, but, but we are not even remotely, like there was a real substantive disagreement, you know, um, and it's, it's important. That's my biggest hope was to get that point across, that we're not really close, we're not almost in agreement, we're not, like, no, these are very, very different things. Um, and Paul says this is very important that we're, this, this topic. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer. Does that help at all? There's other resources too, but I'd, I'd start there. Zeb.
1: Making sure that they understand the fullness of what they actually are claiming when they you most of the time, that it was really they Yeah,
0: and like I said, is <laughs> right. Well, I, I had a professor in college. His he wanted to. He was an altar boy. He was going to be a priest, and he got this this Ten Commandments ruler at a confirmation or something. And then somebody, a Protestant friend, showed him that they'd changed one of the Ten Commandments. From they, they got rid of this ruler. They got rid of graven images. Yeah, they split the they split ten into two. And they yeah. Got rid of the second. And when he found, when he went to the priest, he was like, what, what, <laughs> "Where did the second commandment go?" <laughs> He's just so upset, and he's just okay. I'm done because there was no good answer, because of course Rome has a lot of images and a lot of iconography and a lot of a lot of that stuff, and the veneration of saints and the veneration of holy objects and artifacts. So the second commandment can kind of get problematic, and so at least this, not saying this, this is not something I know of from the Vatican, but at least this guy was given as like a you know Sunday school thing, a ruler that had the Ten Commandments on it, and they. Got rid of the second and split the tenth. How do they split the tenth? They split the tenth into, and I think this held over in the, as well. Okay. Um, They split, they basically mined the first
1: two, more or less erased the second one, and kind of like pull most of the idea over into the first And then they split the second one into, um, you shall not, like, basically, you shall not covet any of your neighbor's possessions, and then,
0: Ah, so they split coveting into possessions and life.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which is the irony there is that loss is covered in the culture. Yeah. So it's not, it's a reduction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that was his big, like, what the, what on earth, you know, moment. Um, So I don't know. Yes. Well, and this is where I'd really recommend the RC Sproul series, cause, cause, um, the, again, the big deal is only, Here's another analogy I didn't use last week. I just didn't have enough time. I had another analogy. Um, I want you to imagine, here, I got a water bottle. This will work. Um, so, let's draw a line. And let's draw another line. Here we go. All right. Hell. Heaven. And purgatory. Okay. This will all come off. And you need to boil the cap of this pen, but, but uh, that'll all come off. Okay. So, this, this imagine this, this water bottle. Um, and when you die, depending on how much water is in here, depends what happens to you. So if you die with the water level below that line, you go straight to hell. If you die with water level somewhere above the first line, but not above the second, then you'll go to purgatory. And if it's above this line, you go to heaven. Okay? So in Roman Catholic theology, because of original sin, we come into this world with an empty bottle. You come in, you've got no righteousness, you've got no grace, you've got nothing. Then, at infant baptism, you're full. You're full up. So babies who've been baptized, who die, skip purgatory straight to heaven. Because the right this this is back to the notion we talked about last week about um, the sacerdotal system, the system whereby physical objects and physical things transmit grace again we 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 don't believe that the lord's table that we took today that the the bread and the the, the grape juice itself is a conduit of anything rather. When Christians act in obedience and faith, when Christians rightly honor the Lord, when we do this, there is certainly a grace that flows, but there's a grace that flows through all acts of faith and obedience. That we aren't looking at these physical objects as physical means of grace, right? We're not getting grace from those things. Um, in, Romans, in Rome's view, though, you do, and so you're constantly... So here's the deal. This, this, the baby gets baptized, the, the, the water baptism gets rid of original sin, now they got a clean slate, they're righteous. The problem is, my water bottle's got a nail hole or two in the bottom of it. Because as we sin, water leaks out. So you're constantly losing water, so what do you have to constantly be doing? Pouring water back in. And so for a Roman Catholic they're constantly losing grace through their own sin, through their own unbelief, and so they're constantly pouring it back in, which is why there's really no assurance of salvation, which is why Rome actually... Can I, can I see that sheet? Because they damn people that say they can be assured. If you, anyone says they can know they're a Christian, you're anathema. Um, I'll give it back to you, Candy. Yeah, let me, let me read one or two of these. Um, did I not put that one on here? I, there's a couple. I have a much bigger list. No, 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 no. Um, one of them, I I don't have it here, but you can, you can easily go online, look up the canons of Trent, and you want session six on justification. Um, but one of, one of them says, if anyone says that those who are justified of necessity will know that they are the Lord's elect. Basically, that once you're saved, you can know you're saved. You're anathema. You're damned. So, so in Rome, you're constantly trying through various ways to pour grace back in, and there's many ways you can get grace. You can do good works, you can have faith, you can do works of satisfaction or penance.
1: So how does the, how does the vicar of Christ on earth not know the guy who's been voted in as the vicar of Christ on earth, according to Roman Catholic belief, how does he not know that he's elect? Does the Pope really have doubts that he because
0: they're saying if he doesn't have doubts, he's damned. <laughs> There's like no self-reflection in this. Yep. So, so, so Zeb's Zeb's point is, it, if, <laughs> um, he could speak ex cathedra, and then he could know. Um, no. Um, so, so. so so what's happening is through all these different means, you're you're pouring, and I remember, there's a lot of different places you can get grace from. Certainly Christ secured a treasury of merit. This is their language, not mine. Christ secured a treasury of merit in his death. However, there are people who've gone died with more water than they needed in the bottle. They're above the second line. Those are the saints who died, this is their term, with an excess of merit. They were more righteous than God required them to be. No, 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 no 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 they're not because Christ got more merit than they did. They would not no, let's not let's not let's not, let's not no, let's not misrepresent them. No. The merit that Christ secured trumps any paltry merit the saints have. Um, they would not say that. No, we we'll, we'll deal fairly here. Um, however they wouldn't say it but the idea of the righteousness of God. Right. right. Right, so that all gets poured into this treasury of merit. So the treasury of merit is mostly the merit of Jesus on the cross, thrown in the merit of all these other people, and then the vicar of Christ, the Pope, is the one who gets to distribute out the merit. And he, and you can do that. That's the whole way indulgences work. Um, indulgences, you could buy these plenary indulgences, and basically the Pope would remit years from purgatory for you or for a loved one. Um, for, for purchasing the indulgence. And, and properly speaking, from, from Rome, the indulgence would be worthless if you weren't buying it in penance. Their, their logic is that giving alms is a good thing and it's a sign of repentance. So you can give alms to the church. So the church can then do it, you know, pass it on to who needs it. And if you do it with the right heart and the right attitude, and they would officially state that, then this, pen, this, this, um, indulgence is good for so much grace. I mean, literally, um, one, of the, one of the indulgent sellers, um, Tetzel, said, you know, so much grace for so little coin. Just a very different view of things. Um, and, and one of the things, if you listen, to, and again, R.C. Sproul really unpacks all this, so I, I highly recommend, especially his session on Roman Catholicism, because it is eye-opening. But all that stuff's still going on. They're just, they just know that that type of stuff, we're too cynical in America for that type of stuff to fly above the radar. But over in, in Europe, that stuff's all still going, on. and it's even going on over here. It's just much less emphasized. But um, one of the things in that CD, one moment. One of the things in that CD, sprawl says is you listen to it. And when he goes over, he was in Italy on a, on some tour, in they're the Vatican City, and he wants you know the tour driver says, "Where do you want to go?" He wants to go to the Sacra Scala. He wants to go to the the steps that the uh, the um, Crusaders brought back from Jerusalem, the ones that Jesus supposedly walked up and down, and this is where Luther had his great like rejection of indulgences. Because what you do is you you do the Pata Nostra or a Hail Mary on every step on your way up, and you'd you'd pay um, your price and you'd get your your remission of sins. And he said we, you couldn't even get within half a mile of the place. Every square inch. This is just a few years ago. Every square inch of this thing has got people on their knees. You know, genuflecting and going up, and on the wall and a plaque in brass lists the indulgence value of doing that. It's absolutely still going on. I mean, it's it's um, absolutely still a part of the theology, Um, and it's a part we would disagree with. The point isn't to mock it, but just to say, look, it's these are two very different things. Yes. Scala Scala, skanta. Yes. I thought it was Sakura scale, the sacred stairs. You sure it's not both? No. Look it up. Anyways, my is oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to correct you and have a question. Yeah. you got to raise your hand again, sorry. Um. So they believe that yeah. Mary is without original sin. Yes, yes. So Yes, part of Roman Catholic... This, this this didn't come about... This is one of the few times, actually, the Pope has spoke ex-cathedra um, from the chair. In other words, even though the Pope can basically write Scripture in, in Roman Catholic view, he he can speak with equal authority. He rarely does it, and it wasn't until like the 1800s that they the Pope officially... Now, this had been in Catholic lore for a long time, but it was, okay, we're deciding it. Mary was sinless... And so in order for her to be sinless you have you ever heard of the term the immaculate conception Okay Mary is the object of the immaculate conception she was conceived without original sin and consequently because only sinners can die Mary couldn't die therefore she had to ascend into heaven Is anyone ever Now when did they start using the term co-redemptrix can you look that up? I'm just curious. I want to be careful. Like, I don't know if this is something... Some, what, I'm, what I don't know about with the pro-redemptrix, is this official canon law, or is this just something somebody said? Most of the Marian dogmas uh, came about. In the... okay, most, most, of the, most of the Marian... Well, this, like I said, this is where I want to be careful because there is a difference between something one priest says and what the official Roman Catholic Church says. And so I don't want to, I don't want to hang what one church father said, or what one priest said, on the entire church, um, which is why I tried to quote exclusively from Trent last week, just because, okay, this is what they officially believe. And they looked at it over 500 years later and said, yeah, we still believe that. Um, so while Zeb looks that up, we'll, we'll try to figure that out. But yeah, they've, they've elevated Mary to a term in a place of, uh, of really, really high, high elevation. Um, you know, my old pastor John MacArthur put it this way. He's, this is kind of the way they view God. God the Father is really, really tough and really, really scary, and you don't really, if you can help it, want to <laughs> deal directly with Him because He's pretty intense. Jesus is certainly more approachable, but He is—he's uh, still pretty scary. He's pretty tough. Now, that, how is that not talking out of both sides? No, yeah, like just, b- b- well, just for the tape, um, at, Vatican, at the Second Vatican Council, at Vatican II, they conferred upon Mary. One of the t- titles was mediator. And yet they say she's a mediator for man, but not in a way that takes away from Jesus' sole mediatorial role. How do you, how do, you do that? But I think here's, here's, here's MacArthur's sort of view, how he explains it. So you got God the Father. He is really intense and scary. Jesus is certainly more relatable He's still pretty intense and scary, but Mary is a sweetheart, and no boy can say no to his mom. And so maybe the notion is Jesus is the sole mediator, but Mary is the mediator between us and Jesus. Well, oh. Saying it's because Jesus favorite right. So when you pray to Mary, and then Mary goes and intercedes for you. Jesus is way more likely to listen to Mary than you, because let's face it, you're 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 a jerk, and she's. Yeah. Can, can we open our Bibles for a minute? Um, okay. Well, I made the point in, in one of my messages um, about Mary that Mary is a recipient of grace, not a fount of grace. Rome has interpreted those passages, you know, the, the, uh, the Meg- Elizabeth's greeting, Hail Mary, full of grace. Um, she's full of grace, she's a source of grace, she's a fountain of grace, that's, that's the Roman dogma. Um, you can look to Mary for grace. She gives it. It's absolutely not what the text said. She's received it. Mary, a recipient of grace. But let's make this really clear. So Mary says in, in Luke chapter 1, that from here on out, all people will call her blessed. There's a very real sense in which we can honor Mary, biblically, faithfully. Mary is a blessed woman. And I I certainly don't think she meant all generations except those Protestants who are afraid of looking Catholic will call me blessed. But go a little further into Luke, chapter 10. Where is it? 10, oh no, sorry, 11, Luke 11. So remember, Luke's gospel is the gospel that contains Mary saying, because remember, Elizabeth blesses her, and she says, you know, blessed is she who believed what was said to her, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, right? And then Mary had just said, after the angel spoke to her, from now on all generations will call me Blessed. So we've got this, you know, Elizabeth blessing her, Mary saying she's going to be called blessed. Same author, Luke, 11 chapters later, verse 27. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Now you'd expect, having read Luke's gospel, right on, way to go, That's exactly what Mary said, That's exactly what Elizabeth said. Blessed rather, he's not... He's not totally disagreeing with her. Not, no, no, you're wrong. Don't focus on that. There's the, the bigger, the truer, the fuller blessing are for those who hear God's Word and keep it. Mary was blessed because she heard God's Word and kept it, and you can be blessed as well if you hear God's Word and keep it. So I don't know how you get this Mary homage, Mary um, adoration from Scripture. Go to John chapter 2. And and Zeb, while we do that, can you look up for me? Your mother and brothers are outside. Who's my mother, brother, and father? That one. Thank you. Luke chapter, John 2. Jesus, um, Jesus' mother, most likely Mary, is in charge of some aspect of this wedding feast. It's possible she's just being a busybody, but it's most likely that she actually has been given charge of something. So when they run out of wine, she takes initiative. I mean, busybody's probably too strong with her, but it's possible she's just stepping in, and I'm going to take care of it. But far more likely that since they were invited, they knew somebody. Because um, Jesus and Mary are invited. The disciples just come because they're with Jesus. Jesus and Mary are specifically invited, so they probably know this person. Mary's probably helping out. She's been given this job. And when the wine ran out, verse 3 the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Doesn't sound like most acceptable grace. And, and the point is in John's gospel is this. Jesus loves his mother. On the cross, Jesus is concerned about caring for his mother. Behold, woman, your son. Son, behold your mother. Like Jesus loves his mother. But the point of this is, and this is a very similar event because his, his rebuke, My hour has not yet come is, is very similar to something that happens in John 7. The point is this. Once Jesus begins his ministry, once he's been baptized, he's no longer fundamentally her son. He's her Lord. And, and Mary doesn't have any leg up in coming to Jesus. Mary doesn't get some inside track. He's on his mission. He's focused on his hour. In John's Gospel, the hour is his hour of his crucifixion. That time shows up his hour hadn't come, his hour. And then finally in John 11, Jesus knew that his hour had come. Um, so the hour is his... He, he's on mission to be the Savior of the world. And in that context, why should I be concerned about the one... Like, that's not any of my concern. It might be your concern, Mary. It doesn't call her mum. Now, the woman's a little strong, um, because in English, if you call someone woman, it's usually a put-down. It's just the word gune. Um, but he doesn't call her mother. He does not call her mater. He calls her, um, this is a cheesy way, but ma'am might have the strength that's appropriate. But he's definitely distancing himself from her. He's definitely not mommy. He's not, no, ma'am. And she gets it. And she says, okay, just do whatever he says. Like, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no longer in charge. Just do whatever he says. Um, and then he goes ahead and he does it anyway. But he does it secretly. Um, anyway. So what's the other passage I was looking for? We'll go back. Yeah, Luke. Again, Luke. Sorry. Yeah, Luke 8. Let's go back to Luke. This is the same gospel. All people are going to call are blessed. And so we need to strike as Christians a healthy balance where we're we're not afraid to lift her up as a wonderful model of faith, as a wonderful example of faithfulness and humility. And there's a lot we can imitate from her. There's a lot we can learn from her. She's a great hero of the faith, up there with the Moses and others like them. And yet, the same author of Luke's gospel, Luke, same same author of Luke's gospel, the same Luke gives us this story, verse 19. So Jesus is teaching when his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd, and he was told the co-redemptor "No, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you." But he answered them, "My mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it." <laughs> yeah, the, the point of that is this: once Jesus begins his mission. Once Jesus is entered into his ministry, because remember, he, earlier, he's really just first and foremost their obedient son. So when they tell him, please don't sneak off anymore, you know, and we'll see this at the end of Luke 2, he does. He obeys. But now he's received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now he's on his prophetic, priestly mission. Um, Jesus makes it clear, you approach me by... According to him, the person I, I recognize kinship with is no longer my genetic relatives. The people I recognize kinship with are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's how, that's how you become Jesus' brother. That's how you become Jesus' mother, and and so it, it's a huge shift. Yes. Uh, a perpetual virginity too that Mary, yeah, so the Mary, yeah, was yeah. To Mary, so okay. The other the other thing they try to do it, it is possible although very 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 unusual but it is within the semantic domains of the word of of, of a Delphos for a brother to mean some distant relative. They try to say it's his cousins. The other option they will argue is that Joseph was a widower and he had kids from previous marriage, so they're Jesus' half-brother. There's lots of... Here's the question them. ask them. When, somebody, when you're writing after the fact and somebody only has one kid ever, do you say they're firstborn or do you say they're only? Why does the text say she brought forth her firstborn son? You might say that if you don't know if the person will have any kids, I might. You know, we can talk about um, Jake and Callie's first child because we don't know if they're more coming or not. But 50 years from now, if that's the only kid, you don't say they're firstborn; you say it's their only. And all the gospel she brought forth her firstborn son. Why? Why say it that way? Why say it that way? Um, and and in Matthew, yeah, they, they they hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary. In Matthew, it says specifically that Joseph did not touch her until the child was born. And in that context, touching her is very clearly husbandly
1: contact.
0: Let me see it. I'm just going to it. Okay. Um, Chapter 1, verse 34. Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he knew her not. Until she had given birth to a son. Now, what on earth does that mean? Seems like that "until" isn't necessary. <laughs> you could just say he knew her not until her firstborn son. Well, that's right at the end of Matthew one. Matthew one. Um, 24 and 25. And these are just good questions. Now, you got to be gentle with your Catholic friends. They've probably never read this. Or if they have read it, they've never stopped to think of the implications. But if you just say, look, if you set aside church councils and stuff, and you're just reading this, what, what is this saying? I mean, he didn't know her, and we all knew. And you can connect that back to Genesis. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about that type of knowing. Um... Yes, Elsa. Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Right. Mm. Matthew 13, 35, you said? 55. Fifty-five. Um, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James... And Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So, I mean. Wow, okay. We may need to edit that out of the tape <laughs> well played dave well played okay um, so so yeah and the point all the point we can make is that because again, a Catholic's going to come at it with three equal tiers of authority: the Bible, church councils, and tradition of the pope and 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 they can certainly appeal to church councils and tradition we 're just trying to show them not only is it not here, the opposite is here. We have examples where Jesus intentionally distances himself from Mary. We have examples where he could say, the Holy Mother's here. Instead he says, who's my mother, my brother, my father, but he who does the will of God. I mean, that's a radical statement. If you hear and obey God's word, you are more to Jesus at that time, his mother and his brother, than these people. Like, What do you make of that? Just ask him. And give him some space. But these are, I don't know how the, on earth you can get around some of these things. Uh, I, I mean, you can get creative with Joseph being a widower and he had stepkids, and so that's all these people who are named. That's what they'll say there. But the, he didn't know her until in the whole firstborn. That to me is really problematic. Um, what possible explanation can there be? And then you let them know, and then you ask them, like, this didn't show up officially in Catholic doctrine until the 18th, the 19th century. Like, this, People weren't thinking this when this was written, you know. Um, this was nineteenth century. Yeah.
1: And it also, this is also the. I, this is one of the Marian dogmas that, like, if, if you don't believe this, this is like this is
0: vitally excluded. Oh, they, they, yeah. Vatican II, they have anathemas. Yeah. A new set of anathemas. So, yeah. You think, you think yeah.
1: Matter. It's the, the term of, of faith. You
0: have yeah. to have faith in this. Yes. If you question this, that's such a blasphemy that you'll be damned. Yeah.
1: They
0: should, they should let that happen. Yeah. I also think it's fun. It's interesting that, that 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 Peter has a mother-in-law. In in the Gospels, so the first pope was married. Peter has a mother-in-law. Jesus heals her, and she gets up and serves. Yes. Is that mother in law? Can you find there can't be many mother in laws? Yes, ma'am. absolutely. Where's the mother in law? Is it Mark? I think it's Mark. I'm going to say Mark. Um. Oh, Matthew eight fourteen. Okay. Now Willoughby, there's only one way to get a mother-in-law. How do you do that? Is there any other conceivable because I mean let's just is there any other conceivable way to obtain a mother-in-law? Well,
1: Does't even church history say that Peter was
0: crucified upside down next to his daughter and his, and his wife. wife? Yeah, his yeah, yeah.
1: Except Paul. But hold on, hold on.
0: Oh. Hold on, let me look at one last thing. Okay, last last place we go to is First Corinthians 9. And these are just, I mean, again, and, and here's the important thing. Um, we need to be loving and kind to our Catholic neighbors and brothers. Ask questions. We, we could easily, we've had a chuckle or two here, but we don't want to mock. We don't, wanna, we don't want to uh, condescend. We want to ask questions. But there's some really challenging, I mean, I, what I'm hoping is if you can lovingly show this and get, get a Roman Catholic to all of a sudden be sort of shaken and go, whoa, whoa, what? Then they'll start asking real questions, and you can sort of just get them thinking. Get them. Yes, Greg. Yeah. remind ourselves that we were they were Yes, yes. So, the truth that seems so obvious to us So, 1 Corinthians 9. Now, listen to this. You want to be even clearer that Peter had a wife at the time Paul wrote. He can't be a widower. This is my defense, verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which means Peter? Peter, as he travels and does ministry, takes along his believing wife. As do the brothers of the Lord. Half brothers. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm just saying, but I'm saying if you can just find one thing that there I mean because no, because if, if, if a Catholic hears from a priest, well the Greek word could mean half I mean, what else they don't have a term for half brothers. So admittedly, if Joseph were a widower and he had kids, They'd be called Jesus brothers, so that that's their explanation. Okay, that that could work. I I dodge that one and just okay, whatever, fine, because you can't really argue that 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 one works at least. It seems unlikely, but it works. He didn't know her until doesn't firstborn doesn't Peter taking along a believing wife doesn't. I'd stick to the ones that there's no work around. There's no there's no way to sidestep it, because absolutely, the Joseph was a widower with stepkids absolutely works if that's true that's they wouldn't have talked about the brothers any other way they would have talked about jesus brothers and sisters but but there isn't like there isn't a a greek wouldn't the greeks wouldn't say his half brothers um they just say his brothers and sisters just i mean i got i've got half sisters but they're my sisters you know and so if you buy the premise of joseph as a widower it holds up the text doesn't contradict that Knowing her until stuff like this is much harder to work around. And I think once, at least in my experience, once you can get a Catholic to start to question the Holy Mother Church and start to go, wait a second, now maybe they'll actually start looking at things honestly. So that, that's, that's what I'd encourage. It goes all the way full circle. Your question, what's the best approach? Get them to question it, however that is. I mean, I might ask them, you know, at the Great Schism when there were three duly appointed popes running around, all saying they are the pope. Was that council inerrant? Was that council that which which council that appointed which pope was the authoritative council? Because remember, they think church history is authoritative, and so which which because two two of the popes were were christened pope by the exact same council of men because they did it and they didn't like. Because there's all these political machinations going on where you know you you elect the guy pope because you're expecting he'll do this, and then the guy didn't do this; he did this, and. They made a new pope <laughs> do what they wanted them to do. You can read all about it. It's a great schism, and then there, they eventually had a third guy running around saying he was the pope too, because their thought was that they'd have, if they got the two popes to agree that if if they both stepped down, that they'd make a new third guy pope, and then they did that, and then one of them said, "Psych," and then the other pope said, "Well, if he's not stepping down, I'm not stepping down," and so you get literally three popes running around, all duly appointed. It just gets crazy. Um, but and even those things maybe can say, shake some of it. But you, what you want to do is they've been taught trust mother church, trust mother church. We, we've got an authority, and I hear this. Look at the Protestants; they're all scattered. They believe so many different things because they don't have an authoritative church structure to tell them what these things mean. So they keep getting told, "Look, look at the Catholic." I mean, the Protestants all over the map on everything because they don't have leaders who can say this is what it means. And so they they trust in that. Get them to question that. Get them to question that. However you do, get them to, wait a second. And then they can start reading things honestly. But until then, they're just going to be like, look, I haven't been to seminary. I'm not a priest. And they said this is what it means. So whatever. That's what you got to get them to do is to get them to question that. Yeah. Okay. um, It's over time. God bless. And we'll see you all next week.